Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. For even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Dear Father, make us attentive to Your Word this morning. Make us see the forcefulness of Paul's warning in this passage. And make us receive it with humility and obedience. Because we understand the magnitude of the gift that we have been given and because we know the gracious heart of the giver. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. In our Lord's famous parable of the prodigal son that we've looked at several times recently, the younger of the two man's, uh, of the man's two sons demanded his share of his father's estate and then he went off to a distant country where he squandered every bit of it on the worst kind of self-indulgent living. Finding himself in financial ruin and abject poverty with the pigs he was attending eating better than he was, he returned to his home in humiliation and repentance, expecting at best to be allowed to work as a hired hand in his father's household. But his father, obviously watching and hoping for his return, saw him coming from a long distance. His father rushed out to him, embraced him, and kissed him. He instructed his servants to to clothe his son with the best robe and to put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then he commanded them to slay the fattened calf so that he could throw an exorbitant feast for this son. Now what if at one point during that great feast, that young man's old childhood friends kind of gathered around him and started to quiz him about what had been going on since they had last seen him? And what if in order to avoid looking bad in the eyes of his friends, that young man had tweaked the facts a little bit, maybe a lot, told them that While he was gone, he had gotten into a business partnership with a very skillful con artist who had built him out of all of his his money in spite of his own good intentions. What if he told them that when he returned home, his father had realized what a great asset his son had always been to the family and that now, with all the hard knocks the boy had been experiencing since he left, told him that his dad realized that he would now be even more worldly wise and of more value to the family business. 
What if he told his friends that he was indeed grateful for his dad's willingness to receive him back in full sonship, but that it was ultimately in his dad's best interest to do so? What would that young man's greatest failure be in that scenario? Would it be his complete disregard for the value of facts? Well, well, surely that would be failure enough. But that's way too clinical and impersonal to really describe the heart of the matter. The far more grievous sin would be that, that young man's failure to rightly value the loving kindness of his father. To be truly grateful for his father's tender mercies that the, that the boy did not deserve at all. And aside from the boy's own failure to appreciate the exceedingly gracious heart of his father, he would be giving his friends a terribly wrong picture of his father's character. An astonishingly incorrect picture of the magnitude of his father's grace and forgiveness toward him. Paul's harsh rebuke against the churches of Galatia in this epistle is a rebuke of that kind of failure. He provides a stern warning in the form of what I'll present as four equations. First, messing with the gospel equals deserting God. Second, gospel distortion is gospel destruction. Third, false ambassadors equal cursed ambassadors. And finally, pleasing men equals denying Christ. First, messing with the gospel equals deserting God. Paul doesn't waste any time launching into his rebuke against the Galatian believers. He doesn't waste any words either. He goes after the Galatian churches with gloves off. Immediately after his brief five-verse introduction to the, to the letter that contains no hint of his customary prayer of thankfulness to God for the faithfulness of his audience, of the believers that he's addressing, he says, I am amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Some translations render, I am amazed as I am astonished. And that's a good way to present Paul's attitude here. Paul is dumbfounded to receive the news that the Galatians are embracing a different gospel than the one he and his co-workers had so faithfully preached to them. It made no sense to him at all. If there's anything we need to glean from the urgency and forcefulness of Paul's rebuke, It is that the issue he's addressing is critical. This isn't some peripheral matter. He's not just correcting some minor lapse in the churches of Galatia on a non-essential matter. He's talking about false teaching which, if it were true, would mean that Christ died needlessly, which is exactly how he puts it in Galatians 2.21. Paul is addressing heresy that was insinuating itself into the churches that God had established through His ministry not very long before. 
Another important element of Paul's obvious sense of urgency here has to do with timing. The acceptance by the Galatian believers of this error was in progress. He doesn't say, you have deserted God. He says, you are deserting God. Think of the level of urgency that you would have behind your words and actions if you were trying with all your might to keep a loved one from jumping off a precipice from which he was already dangling one leg. And then compare that with what you would feel and sense if you arrived at that precipice after he had already jumped. It's a completely different situation. In one case, it's a, it's a life and death urgency. In the other case, it's just plain grief. As I said last week, Paul is speaking throughout this letter out of a great and godly love and compassion for those he is addressing. And it's important for us to keep that in mind. It would be very tempting at this point to jump ahead in the, in the text and start talking about the specifics of the heresy that's at issue here. And many of you know what that is. But Paul doesn't go there yet, so I won't either. He's going to get there in the next chapter. If we jump ahead, we might easily miss the root problem and the essential cure for that problem. See, we need to be astonished. We need to be dumbfounded about that real issue just as Paul is. When we are, then we'll be ready to look at the symptoms, at the outworkings of that fundamental and grievous error. So let's look harder at what Paul says is actually going on here. First, he's declaring that when we alter, when we change the gospel, we are deserting a person, not just a proposition. Paul's analysis of what was actually happening in the churches of Galatia explains why he found their willingness to even consider this this different gospel astonishing. Because the Galatian error was not merely that they were embracing a different message or set of beliefs. See, because of the intensely personal nature of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, if you turn away from that message to a different gospel, you're not merely swapping out one set of propositions for another. You are deserting a person. You're betraying God who called you by the grace of Christ. Those whom Paul is rebuking here are Christians. People whose eternal destiny is settled. I'm not saying there weren't any unbelievers in the mix with the believers. I'm saying that's not who Paul is talking to. His concern is for God's sheep. And the reason he's so animated and forceful is because he has a fiercely protective love for the saints in these fledgling churches that God planted through His ministry. If you look at the narrative of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapters 13 and and 14, you will see one glowing progress report after another, celebrating the great receptiveness of many, both among Gentiles and Jews in the cities of Asia Minor. As the Holy Spirit was working mightily through the preaching of these two men, Paul and Barnabas. 
Now here we are just a short time later and things are clearly heading in the wrong direction. Paul is explicitly addressing those whom he says were called by the grace of Christ. What does that mean? When Romans 8 verse 30, Paul says that those whom God predestined, those, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That goes from A to Z. God doesn't try to save anybody. He saves those whom He decreed from before the foundations of the earth that He would save. And He saves them to the uttermost. When Paul speaks of those who were called by the grace of Christ, he's talking about the irrevocable call of God that results without exception in the justification, sanctification, and glorification of the one who is called. And Paul says that the movement in these churches to turn away from the true gospel is a desertion of God. It is a betrayal of a person, of the one who called us by His grace. The one who Paul just said in verses 3 and 4 sent His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us out of this present evil age. This is what makes a believer's willingness to turn his eyes away from the gospel of grace utterly astonishing to Paul. This is what should make any notion of turning away from the gospel of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ unthinkable to us. Any such defection is a desertion of the grace giver. It says to our God, our holy God, whose eternal wrath is the one and only thing that we actually deserve, that His amazing grace toward us that cost His own Son His life just isn't all that impressive to us anymore. It says to Him that Jesus Himself isn't all that impressive to us anymore. When we behold God's grace at the cross of Jesus Christ, and we see what that tells us about God Himself, we should find it unthinkable to take liberties with the good news of that grace. When we alter the Gospel, we're deserting a person, not just a proposition, and we are deserting the One who called us by His grace. In verse 15, Paul declares that he was called Later on, he declares he was called the same way you and I were if we're believers. By the grace of God. What does that mean? That that you and I and everyone who has been saved was called by the grace of God. Well, there's a powerful word picture from the Old Testament that helps me understand what what it means to be called by the grace of God. It's found in Zechariah chapter 3. One of those great gospel passages in the Old Testament. And it's, it's the phrase, a brand plucked from the fire. In the vision presented to the prophet Zechariah in that passage, God harshly rebukes Satan, who's chomping at the bit to hurl accusations against this man Joshua, who's the high priest of Judah. Joshua, in this vision, is standing before the judgment seat of God clothed in excrement-covered robes. And that picture's the absolute 
uncleanness of this man, his complete unworthiness to stand anywhere near a holy God. And because Joshua is the high priest of Judah, he is the representative of the people in the presence of God. So what's true of him is true of them and true of us. God had no use for Satan's accusations against Joshua. God already knew all about Joshua's uncleanness as he knows about ours. Before Satan could utter a word, God said to Satan, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And then God had his angels take the unclean robe off of Joshua and he declared that he had removed Joshua's uncleanness and that he had, and then he had him clothed in royal robes instead of terribly soiled robes. What a marvelous picture of God's gracious calling and work of redemption and renewal in the life of every child of God. If you're a lump of coal and a raging fire, your destiny is very clear. You're about to become ash. And you can't do anything about it. You cannot do anything to save yourself. The only way for you out of that destiny of complete destruction is if someone else does something. And God did. God sent His own Son to take upon Himself the guilt and shame of your sin and to pay in full the eternal debt that you owed to God because of that sin. If you belong to Jesus Christ, that's true of you only, only because God reached into time and space and He plucked you out of the fire of His own wrath to make you his treasured possession together with a bunch of other lumps of coal that he plucked out of that same fire. He called you out of death into life. He called you out of darkness into light by the grace of Christ alone. It was entirely his doing and it was not at all your doing. Dead men and lumps of coal don't get to do very much to help themselves. And that's how God describes us until Christ saves us. That's what the gracious calling of God is like. It's a calling out that propels us out of one reality into another. It plucks us out of utter darkness and death into brilliant light and eternal life. And that entire transformation is, by definition, all of grace. That means it's a gift. That calling is the template for the whole Christian life. That calling tells us how God does every good thing that He does, that He will ever do in us, for us, or through us. It's all a gift. It's all of grace. That's what this epistle is about from beginning to end. It's all of grace. Paul takes the Galatians back to that calling because that's the exact focus of their attention and affection that will decisively put away from them every threat to the gospel of grace and will move them toward maturity in Christ and usefulness to Christ. That is the very same realization. That is the same reality that will cure us of every false gospel. See, they have to go back to their first love. 
to the incomparable person who called them out of the darkness by His incomparable grace alone. Your salvation, past, present, and future, your justification, your ongoing sanctification, and your coming glorification is 100% God's work, not yours. You're just a lump of coal that God is turning into His own diamond. A diamond doesn't choose the heat and pressure and time that turns it into something precious. A diamond doesn't choose the jeweler who skillfully shapes it by cutting away the pieces that don't belong. A diamond doesn't choose the clarity and color and angle of its facets that beautifully reflect the light that surrounds it. God is the mine, the miner, the jeweler, and the light. He knew us before we existed. He created us. He calls us out and He calls us His. And He makes us His treasure forever. We do none of it. He does all of it. That's the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The only real light, the only real glory, the only real righteousness, the only true holiness that we will ever have is the glory and righteousness and holiness of Christ given to us by the grace of God. He's the light that we show off. We're not. When we get that, when we truly get that it is all of grace, it is unimaginable that we could defect from Him who called us by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The reason the Galatians had become vulnerable to this threat against the gospel of grace was because they had turned their eyes away from the giver of grace. And Paul's prescription to cure this terrible defection was implicitly for the Galatians to turn back to the grace giver. To get their eyes off of themselves, off of other men, and to turn their eyes back to Him who called them by the grace of Christ. That's the solution to every threat to the gospel. Messing with the gospel equals deserting God and gospel distortion equals gospel destruction. See, it's not really another gospel. Verse 7 is very instructive and we must not miss its point. I'll put it up there in just a moment. The threat against the gospel that Paul is addressing here is not the pantheistic religions of Greece and Rome. It's not the pagan systems of idol worship common to the Gentile subcultures in the Roman Empire. It's not Buddhism or Hinduism. It's not some early manifestation of secular humanism or mechanistic determinism or modern atheism. It's not any of the man-made religions of the world that either actually or functionally ignore God's revelation to man through His written Word and through His Son. All those religions are off the table in this discussion. Paul is talking about what many in his day were calling Christianity. He says in verse 7, that the different gospel to which he had just referred in verse 6, the false gospel that was enticing many of the saints in Galatia to desert the grace giver is really not another gospel. Because there isn't another gospel. 
It is a distortion of the gospel of Christ. The very serious threat to the true gospel in any age is not the threat from outside the church. It is the threat that is being embraced and propagated inside the church. This is important. Satan's most effective, most crippling attack against the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't the attack that comes from non-religious people. It isn't even the attack that comes from religious people who clearly have no interest in the Christ of the Bible. The most damaging attack of Satan against the gospel comes from people who call themselves Christ followers. Who say that they're part of us, but who distort the message of truth, the message of God's amazing grace toward us in Jesus. As we proceed through this book, we'll look closely at the specific distortions of the gospel that were threatening the Galatian churches in Paul's day. We'll talk a lot about how those distortions persist today. But even before we look ahead in the text, it's worth taking a moment to consider some of the distortions that pose a threat to the good news of grace in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the unique message of God's righteousness freely given to lost and cursed men and women who would otherwise never have righteousness and thus who would never have relationship with the holy and righteous God. If you study Paul's epistle to the Romans, which, by the way, the letter to the Galatians is most like among all the books of the Bible, you'll see that the gospel is all about God's righteousness given to men, not earned, not worked for, given as a gracious gift through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the amazingly good news of righteousness imputed to us, that means credited to our account as a gift from God once and for all when we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ of a righteousness that is being imparted to us as a gift from God day by day as He continually sanctifies us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And a righteousness that one day will be perfected in us as a gift from God when we are glorified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Any supposedly good news that isn't about the righteousness of God given to unrighteous men by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone isn't really good news and it isn't really the gospel. If you know what the real thing is, it makes it a lot easier to spot the counterfeits. Just briefly, what are some of the counterfeits that have kind of crept in among the church of Jesus Christ today? Well, how about the gospel of prosperity? That may be the first one that many people think about. That Jesus died to make us healthy, wealthy, and in control, full control of our own lives and well-being. Right here, right now. Is there any mention in that gospel of Him dying to make us righteous? Holy? Any mention of how throughout the Bible, God regularly frustrates the plans of His people 
and shatters the illusion that we control anything (laughs) so that He may teach us true dependence on the One who alone is our righteousness, our well-being, our life. What about the gospel of self-esteem? That Jesus came to convince you just how very valuable you are both to God and to men. To cure your crummy (laughs) self-image. Is there any mention in that gospel of your utter unworthiness to have anything to do with God? Of God's clear declaration that we are all sinners and enemies, helpless to make ourselves right in His eyes until He saves us until He plucks us out of the fire purely by His grace. There's another one that Phil Riken, and by the way, it's a great commentary, Philip Riken on Galatians, calls the gospel of morality. That Jesus came to be our example of good and moral living so we could copy Him and thereby get right with God. If you have any awareness at all of the magnitude of your sin and how far short you fall of the mark of God's holiness, that phony gospel couldn't be good news to you at all. How about the gospel of Christian serenity that declares that Jesus died to give you peace in this life without sorrow or conflict or serious trouble? instead of peace in the midst of sorrow and conflict and serious trouble. Is there any mention in that so-called gospel of the sorrowful, painful discipline of the Lord that He promises to every child that He loves in Hebrews 12? The scourging of the Lord that conforms us to Him. A discipline that He says is indispensable in order for Him to do what? To impart His holiness to us. You know what that means? To sanctify us. To make us like Christ indeed. Not just in position. And then there's the ever-popular gospel of unholy love. Declares that Jesus is so loving that He's willing to overlook our sins so that He can have relationship with us even though we're messed up. Talk about Christ dying needlessly. There are all kinds of distorted Gospels that invoke the name of Jesus Christ while denying His utterly miraculous and supernatural work to redeem wretched sinners who are lost and dead in our sin. To give us His own righteousness as a gift through faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Righteousness without which we would never, never be able to stand in the presence of our perfectly holy God. See, false gospels always compromise the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Are you willing to expose every assumption that you have about how you were saved, how you are being saved, and how you will be saved to the light of God's Word and then throw out the window any aspect of those assumptions if they don't line up with what God actually says about His astounding work of grace. The third equation in this warning is that false ambassadors equal cursed 
ambassadors. Paul says in verse 8, But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. His point, I believe, in mentioning both apostles and angels is that it doesn't matter how solid a preacher's credentials look. It doesn't matter matter how respected or how revered he is in the eyes of men. He could even be an angel. If he messes with the purity of the gospel of grace, he is accursed. And the word accursed that Paul uses here is the strongest word he could use. It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word that means put under the ban. It means irrevocably devoted to destruction. This is as cursed as cursed gets. In a word, it means hellbound. Is that the approach that we take toward those who make subtle adjustments to the gospel of Jesus Christ which undermine the grace of that gospel? The action item in this passage for the believers at Galatia is to run such preachers of falsehood out of his church. We need to get something, we need to get something very clear about all of this. Paul is not condemning misguided sheep in the flock of God. He's condemning wolves in sheep's clothing. He is sternly warning the sheep whom he loves And he's expressing the greatest possible concern that they are in the process of deserting the God of grace because they're flirting with the distortion of the gospel. But his words of condemnation are directed toward those who are advocating, who are preaching this distortion. He switches in verses 8 and 9 from the second person, you, to the third person, he. At the end of each of these two verses... Parallel declarations of condemnation. If you put those verses together, what you end up with is something like, if we or an angel from heaven or any man preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, the one that you received, let him be accursed. Paul's condemning the wolves in an effort to rescue the sheep. His attitude toward these gospel distorters reminds me of the words of the young shepherd boy David to King Saul. Just before David went up against the giant Goliath with nothing more than a sling and a stone. In 1 Samuel 17, David told the king, your servant, speaking of himself, was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and I attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your serpent has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has taunted the armies of the living God. That's the fierce love of a good shepherd for his sheep. That's the fierce love of an under-shepherd for the, the real shepherd. That's the kind of protective love that God has for us. That's the kind of love that drove Paul to speak so forcefully here and throughout this book. In the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, some of the strongest rebukes that Jesus gives to those churches have to do with their failure to run out 
the false teachers. Beloved, we need to be so saturated in all that the Bible tells us of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ that we quickly recognize every counterfeit gospel. And we need to be ruthless about driving the advocates of those counterfeits out the door of His church. When one of our fellow saints doesn't have the knowledge of God's Word or the discernment from God's Word to recognize such an attack against the real gospel, we need to be both compassionate and persistent in helping that brother or sister to understand the nature of the real threat. And then we need to point his eyes or her eyes back to the one who called him by his marvelous grace. The last equation in Paul's warning is that pleasing men equals denying Christ. What is it that makes us so prone to fall prey to distortions of the gospel of Christ? Well, the last verse of this passage gives us one of the most common causes of that tendency in the church. And it is that we are worried about pleasing people. In chapter 2 of the same letter, Paul will provide a vivid example of men-pleasing that had caused a great deal of damage in the church at Syrian Antioch and in the church at Jerusalem. And the example that he provides gives us a, a big clue about what he means when he refers to seeking the favor of men here in chapter 1, verse 10. Galatians 2, verses 11 to 13, he says, this is Paul speaking, he says, when Cephas, that's Peter, you know Peter, the disciple of Jesus Christ? When Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now that's not the same word as anathema. It means he was, he was outside of the will of God. He was disapproved. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And by the way, Barnabas is the guy who accompanied Paul when these churches were planted. The ones that he's writing to. Now, According to those verses, what fear had enticed Peter and Barnabas and others to turn a cold shoulder to the Gentile converts in Antioch who hadn't been circumcised? It's right here. They feared losing the approval of the Judaizers. They were afraid of displeasing influential men who believed that Gentile Christians, Gentile converts had to be circumcised to follow the law of Moses in order to really be saved. And what was the result of them caving in to their badly misplaced fear? That's also right here in the next verse. Paul says, when I saw that they, Peter, Barnabas, and others, were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compare Gentiles to live like Jews? And then he's talking about justification by grace through faith alone. So what happens as soon as we allow ourselves to become concerned about gaining or keeping the approval of men? what happens is that we mess with the gospel itself. 
And when you mess with the gospel, you desert the grace giver. You desert God and you betray Christ. So, brothers and sisters, if the goal of pleasing men is anywhere on your priority list, your loyalty to God and your fidelity to His gospel have already already been severely compromised. You already have one foot in enemy territory. The world, the flesh, and the devil are pulling hard at the heartstrings of every believer to turn our attention away from the giver of grace and from the grace of His gift. And any priority that we put on pleasing men is going to pull us away from the true gospel. We have an audience of one. Make no mistake, men-pleasers are Christ-deniers. Paul says in verse 10, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. That means you can't do both. You have to pick one or the other. Have you ever compromised the gospel to avoid putting a good relationship with a friend at risk? Have you ever tweaked or soft-pedaled the biblical definitions of sin or holiness to avoid offending someone? If you have, then what you're messing with is the gospel of grace and the grace of the gospel. And you are turning your face away from the grace giver. Have you ever felt compelled to back off a little on the apart from works aspect of the good news because some Christians you know find such wording a little hard to swallow? If you cannot say with Paul to him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness, then you're messing with the gospel of grace and with the grace of of the gospel. Are you putting a higher priority on joining hands with anyone who will side with you against some terrible injustice in our culture, like abortion, than the priority that you assign to proclaiming the gospel to lost people? As image bearers and agents of Jesus Christ, It is good and right for us to advocate for the vulnerable, especially the most vulnerable among us. It is good and right that we show kindness to those who are downtrodden and abused by godless people and a godless culture. But brothers and sisters, if you're more concerned about fighting an injustice than you are about the eternal destiny of the person standing beside you as you fight against that injustice, your priorities are not God's priorities. If strength in numbers and the approval of like-minded people required to obtain that strength is a bigger deal to you than the purity of the gospel or the proclamation of the gospel, you can be sure that you are compromising the gospel. There are many causes in this life that are worthy of our energy and effort as image bearers of Christ. And by the way, I strongly believe Abortion is one of those causes that the people of God need to be aggressively doing battle against. But there are no causes. There are no causes worthy of compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pleasing men is not our mission. Fixing the culture is not our mission. 
populating the kingdom of our glorious King and gracious Savior with Christ followers, that is our mission. Don't mess with the Gospel. Proclaim it with your mouth at the same time that you're adorning it with your life. But don't ever tweak it. What's the solution for our misguided adjustments to the Gospel? Let me take you back to that illustration that I presented at the beginning. How would that young man set things right after changing the story up the way he had? Well, he would take a hard look at the truth about his father and about himself. He would repent of the liberties that he had taken with the facts, but much more to the point, he would repent of the gross misrepresentation of his father's heart that he had given to his friends and that perhaps he had even come to believe himself. He would go to his father and confess his lies and he would tell his father as earnestly as he could how utterly that man's kindness and forgiveness had transformed his own life. And then he would go to his friends and set the record straight so that they too would know the exceedingly gracious heart of his father. How rightly, how deeply, how completely do we value the heart, the gracious heart of our Heavenly Father? The answer to that question is found in the answer to another question. How uncompromisingly do we cling to and how faithfully and fervently do we proclaim His account, His account of the gospel of His grace toward us in Jesus Christ? Dear Father, we pray that You would humble us, that You would make us quick to see the astounding, astounding nature of Your miraculous grace toward us in Jesus Christ. That we would have a right understanding of Your holiness and of our sin. That we would know, Lord, that we have been plucked out of the fire. And that it's all of your doing. Teach us, Lord, never to mess with the gospel of your grace or with the grace of your gospel. Teach us never to turn our eyes away from the one who has bestowed upon us every good thing and every perfect gift in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.